Hello and welcome to this session on reducing global catastrophic biological risks with Jamie Yassif. I'm Sim and I'll be the MC for this session. We'll be starting with a 17 minute talk by Jamie and then we'll move on to a live Q&A session where she will respond to some of your questions. Now I would like to introduce our speaker for this session. Dr Jamie Yassif is Senior Fellow for Global Biological Policy and Programmes at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. She previously served as a program officer at Open Philanthropy, where she led the Biosecurity and Pandemic Preparedness Initiative. In its role, she recommended and managed approximately $40 million in biosecurity grants, which rebuilt the field and supported work in several key areas. Prior to this, Jamie worked as a science and technology policy advisor at the US Departments of Defense and Health and Human Services. Here's Jamie. Hello everyone, my name is Jamie Yassif and I am a senior fellow at, at NTI on our team for Global Biological Policy and Programs. Uh, thanks so much for joining our conversation today and I'm really looking forward to talking about our work at NTI on reducing global catastrophic biological risks. So I'm gonna start by discussing uh, GCBRs in the context of COVID uh, because it's highly relevant and it's likely to shape work in this area for the next few years. The COVID pandemic has exposed governments and international organizations as ill-prepared and ill-equipped to manage the kind of catastrophic biological event that the public health and global, health, global security officials have warned of for years. And while national and global leaders are rightly focused on saving lives and fostering economic recovery in the wake of the pandemic, now is really also the time to strengthen international capabilities to prevent and respond to future high-consequence biological events, which could have the same level of impact as COVID or could be orders of magnitude more severe. It's also, but it's also really important uh, in this work to, to draw the right lessons and uh, from COVID and to recognize a full range of potential future biological risks and not to be too narrowly focused on the specific scenario that's unfolding uh, at the moment notwithstanding all the really important challenges. Now, first, while naturally emerging novel pathogens can cause significant harm, as we are seeing, uh, it's important to bear in mind that engineered or synthesized pathogens have the potential to pose an even greater risk of a biological event with devastating population-wide consequences. We should also be cognizant that these risks could emerge from a wide range of sources, so not only naturally emerging infectious disease outbreaks, but also potentially deliberate biological attacks or accidental laboratory release events. And we believe uh, that these types of events could cause damage that is much more severe than COVID and has the potential to, to pose catastrophic risks to human populations around the world. And that's really the perspective that informs our work on reducing these risks. And we can think about COVID as a warning shot in some, in some way, um, in the sense that it creates an opening for change um, and really draws the attention of national and global leaders to the importance of, uh, of reducing biological risks. But, you know, there are a couple of caveats to that. First of all, we're going to have a finite window of opportunity to drive the kinds of changes that are needed at a national and international level. And we have to engage in a really focused effort to, to advocate for these necessary changes. They're certainly not going to happen automatically. And so um, in this vein, just wanted to sort of back up a second and, and sort of frame how we talk about global catastrophic biological risks when we're talking to our uh, peers and colleagues in the international community and in the public health community and in the biosecurity community. We tend to frame it as a, a biological risk of tremendous scale that could cause severe damage to human civilization, potentially undermining its long-term potential. 
And our work at NTI to reduce GCVRs has two threads. Uh, a large part of our work is really focused on prevention, which is you know, addressing the root causes of bioweapons development, trying to shape the cost-benefit of an analysis of, of uh, states or other powerful actors or non-state actors who might be interested in developing or using these weapons and trying to re you know, make that a less attractive option in a variety of ways and to reduce the likelihood that that might happen in the future. On the response side, our work is focused on developing and strengthening operational capabilities to respond to high-consequence biological events. And as we've seen with COVID, which is a very large bio-event, but is not as large as what we sometimes are concerned about when we think about GCBRs, even at this scale, we've seen that national and global systems have really struggled to scale a correct uh, a response to, to, to slow the rates of transmission and, and save lives. And so if you imagine something much bigger, it's kind of scary to think what that might look like. Um, so for the rest of my talk, I'm going to focus mostly on our prevention work, uh, but happy to talk about uh, our response work to, during the Q&A if there's interest. And specifically, I'm gonna talk about uh, a tabletop exercise that NTI convened earlier this year at the Munich Security Conference and a new report uh, on that work. So in mid-February of 2020, uh, during the Munich Security Conference, which is an international uh, high-level meeting uh, where heads of state come together to talk about the most important uh, national and global security issues, uh, just as the new coronavirus was spreading globally, NTI convened more than a dozen senior leaders from across Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America for a fictional scenario-based exercise that's focused on high-consequence biological threats. And the actual scenario was uh, uh, an outbreak appears. Um, it appeared to be an engineered virus. Um, there was initially uncertainty about where, why, how it was released. It was tracked back to a government lab, um, and it was ultimately revealed to be an accidental release event from that laboratory that was, associ uh, and it was associated with a clandestine uh, bioweapons uh, research program. I'm happy to talk more about the scenario during the Q&A. And our, you know, our team at NTI developed this exercise with, with two goals in mind. First, we wanted to highlight emerging biological risks that are associated with rapid technology advances and to have participants discuss uh, potentially effective governance measures that could meaningfully reduce these risks. And our second goal was to examine uh, current and possible new mechanisms for preventing the development of biological weapons by states and other sophisticated actors, and to develop effective ways to address the root causes of decisions to pursue these types of weapons. You know, and our event had been planned um, long before the emergence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We started planning in 2019. But we saw striking similarities in how the fictional disease in our scenario swept the globe and foreshadowed the widespread impact and paralyzing knock-on effects that we're now experiencing as a result of the COVID pandemic. You know, and discussions among exercise participants uh, revealed major gaps and capabilities within the international system to prevent and respond to high-consequence biological threats. And they largely agreed about three major short shortfalls. One is that the accelerating development and the global spread of bioscience is not matched with the development of norms and governance tools to manage the risks of deliberate misuse or accidental release. It's just moving too fast and governance is not keeping up. Second is that the international community does not have sufficient transparency measures that can really um, clarify the intentions and capabilities of bioscience research and development that is being conducted 
in, in countries around the world. And that's um, quite risky. And it, under, uh, it creates a potential for an atmosphere of misperceptions and mistrust that can uh, potentially, in the worst case scenario, lead to arms racing behaviors. And third, there's a critical gap in the international capacity to investigate high consequence biological events of unknown origin. So th these findings um, and recommendations are all included in our new report um, on reducing GCBRs, which we launched in September on the margins of the UN General Assembly. And I'm just going to uh, take a uh, take a few minutes to talk about the recommendations that our um, NTI team uh, developed as a, uh, to to sort of fill the gaps that were. Uh, identify through this exercise. So one, you know, reducing biotechnology risks and implementing global norms for life science research in countries around the world. Second, uh, enhancing transparency to build trust and reduce uncertainty. And third, developing capacity uh, to rapidly investigate biological events um, of unknown origin. And so I'm going to talk about each of these recommendations in greater detail over the next few minutes and some of the work that NTI is doing to address these risks or to, to, to take these recommendations forward. So first of all, I'd like to focus on, on bolstering transparency. So, you know, the goal here is really um, avoiding dangerous misperceptions. Um, there, historically, we've seen that um, misperceptions uh, between countries or perceptions that other countries um, might be exploring the development of biological weapons um, can create an incentive for other countries to, to follow down a similar path. And, and to the extent that's possible, we really want to avoid that future. And you know, the challenge here is that the, the Biological Weapons Convention, which is the global uh, multilateral forum that really uh, embodies the norm against development and use of biological weapons, it doesn't have a verification provision. There's no measure by which, uh, there's no mechanism by which uh, states parties can verify that other states parties are in compliance or not. Um, and it's very unlikely for a variety of reasons that that's going to change anytime soon, both due to uh, political challenges and technical challenges. And I'm happy to talk about that more uh, during the Q&A. Um, you know, there are some other transparency measures, um, such as confidence building measures and some voluntary peer review processes that states are leading. And those are really important, valuable, um, but, uh, but they're not sufficient and we, we need to do a lot better. So the, the recommendation that, uh, that NTI is putting forward is that governments, academia, and industry should develop and, and test enhanced transparency measures, that we should sort of broaden the aperture outside of just the BWC frame, and we should really engage more stakeholders um, that, that are engaged in bioscience research to, to pilot and test different ways of promoting transparency about their work. Um, while protecting their intellectual property or their academic, uh, their academic research, um, and for them to share lessons learned with each other so we can think about building a more uh, bottom-up approach uh, to improving uh, best practices in this area and see if we can accelerate progress. 
you know, we're also really interested in having continued conversations in the context of the Biological Weapons Convention. And, you know, there's a, uh, there's a review conference coming up in, in late 2020. Will there be an opportunity to set the agenda for the next five years? And we, we're hoping that as part of the agenda or the work plan of the BWC from 2022 to 2026, that, that we might have an agenda item about enhanced transparency measures so we can really create space and focus on this issue within the BWC. So the, the second recommendation um, that I'm going to focus on is, you know, strengthening capabilities to investigate the, the source of a biological event during a crisis. And before I sort of get more into the recommendation, I wanted to share a bit more detail about the, um, about the challenge. So, you know, right now there are two existing mechanisms for investigating biological events. One is the World Health Organization. They um, have the capability to carry out public health investigations about naturally emerging pandemics. And that's critically important, immensely valuable, um, and it needs to be protected and strengthened. Likewise, um, the, the UN Secretary, uh, Secretary General has a Secretary General's mechanism, and that's an authority um, that uh, enables them to launch an investigation in case there's an allegation of deliberate misuse of chemical or biological weapons. But there's this huge area in between. Um, what if it's an accidental release event? We don't really have a mechanism that covers that. Or what if we just don't know? Um, you know, the, there, and, and, um, there isn't really a mechanism to run to ground a scenario where there's uncertainty. Well, we think it might not be naturally emerging, but we don't really have strong evidence and we'd like to get more clarity. And that's really the gap that, that, that we're looking to address here. So what we're proposing is uh, the establishment of a new joint assessment mechanism, which we uh, affectionately refer to as the JAM, um, uh, that could uh, investigate biological events of unknown origin to, to address this in-between space. You know, and the key features that we're really thinking about is that it would have uh, operational capability to, to rapidly launch an investigation within 48 hours of authorization by the UN system, that it would have an internationally diverse roster of technical experts, and that it would be transparent, rapid, science-based, and internationally credible, and to the greatest extent possible, really be insulated from political influence or political bias. It would be really fact-based and evidence-based. Um, and we also think that we should have a, a carefully calibrated trigger for launching an investigation, setting very clear terms about when, when you actually would uh, trigger an investigation like this. It's important not to set the, the bar too high, um, such that the mechanism, that the barriers are too high and the mechanism can never be used. We also don't want to set it so low that you could have lots of frivolous investigations that are not uh, based on uh, uh, for, for good reasons, just for frivolous purposes. So getting that right is, is really important. That's something we're actively thinking about at NTI in consultation with experts. So finally, I wanted to talk about our recommendation about improving uh, bioscience governance and, and sort of developing norms and governance capabilities um, uh, in this area. So, you know, the, the reason this is important is because um, you know, there are rapid advances in technology and they have tremendous potential to improve public health, improve uh, pandemic preparedness, foster economic development. It has tremendous upsides, but it also carries unique risks and we need to be cognizant of those risks and we need to really safeguard bioscience against, um, you know, what we're trying to avoid is exploitation of the legitimate global bioscience research and development enterprise, uh, protect it from being exploited by malicious actors who might want to use it to cause harm. 
And you know that that harm, that exploitation could take the form of information hazards or or exploiting uh, resources, uh, goods, and services that could help make it easier to make a biological weapon. So we really want to protect against that. And there are sort of two threads to our work. One is uh, quite uh, narrowly focused, particularly on DNA synthesis screening, sort of uh, is shoring up systems to to uh, protect against. Uh, DNA synthesis companies letting the building blocks of uh, potentially dangerous pathogens fall into the hands of malicious actors. And the second piece is broader in scope, and that's really about um, trying to find a way to establish global norms and best practices um, for biosecurity, develop a, a sort of common international view about what uh, responsible behavior is and what best practices are for biosecurity, and then figure out how to actually operationalize them in practice, figure out what kind of governance measures uh, national governments can put into place to, to make this real. So NTI is really focused on this issue because we think it's an important opportunity to reduce risk. And we launched a, a technical consortium um, in May 2020 that's really focused on uh, strengthening the global system for DNA synthesis screening. And we're also working with international partners to explore the possibility of establish, establishing an international normative entity. Um, and it's early days for that, but I'm happy to talk more about that during the Q&A. So thanks so much for your attention and uh, looking forward to, uh, to your questions and a great discussion. Thanks. Thanks so much for that talk, Jamie. I see we've had a number of questions submitted, so let's kick off with the uh, first one. Um, so what do you think are the biggest bottlenecks in bio-risk research? Quite a broad question. Great, thank you, Simran, and that's a that's a really interesting question. So, bio risk uh, assessment is is quite challenging because there's so much uncertainty associated with it. So, you can break it down into two components: thinking about what are the risks associated with different types of pathogens and what might these pathogens be capable of doing, uh, and then the other component is what might malicious actors such as states or non-state actors wish to achieve? And there's tremendous uncertainty for both of them. In terms of pathogens, we can't really run experiments. So all we can do is theoretically, most, mostly, we have a natural experiment unfolding right now with a global pandemic, um, but we can't do, we can't test what's possible. So all we have are models that approximate the world um, uh, in, uh, to the greatest, you know, getting rid of some detail, you try to sort of predict where the pathogen might spread under a variety of assumptions, um, but that's highly uncertain. Um, and we uh, have characterized natural pathogens to an extent, but we don't really know uh, what's coming down uh, over the horizon in terms of engineered pathogens. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. In terms of uh, malicious actors, um, it's very hard to discern the capabilities and intentions of these actors because uh, you can't do uh, remote monitoring of facilities to really get a, a read on what's going on. And it's very difficult to also ascertain their intentions without um, having a relationship with them or having access to, to their personnel. Mm -hmm. Great. So a, a question I'm sure you get a lot. So with natural pathogens, there seems to be a trade-off between the case fatality rate and the number of people who are infected. So what, to what degree does this imply that there's an upper limit to the X risk associated with GCBRs? Thank you. That's also a really great question. And I think this, this sort of builds on the first question about the uncertainty about what's possible with a variety of pathogens. So it is true that most scientists believe that there is tension between uh, case fatality rate 
uh, and the number of people who are infected, but it's not a hard and fast rule and there's a lot of wiggle room there. So the basic principle is that for a pathogen to continue to spread in a population, for um, it can to infect the next wave of people, that infection, that transmission event needs to happen before the infected person stops circulating or um, or uh, dies. And so it's really about the timing of it. And so if that person, even if they uh, if they perish as a result of the disease, if they're able to transmit the disease before that happens, that means that you can have a high case fatality rate under certain conditions and also have a pathogen that's highly transmissible. Um, and to what degree does this imply that there's an upper limit on X risk? Uh, I think it's, I don't think that you can really use that principle to have certainty about that. I think it's very uncertain. Um, and the other thing I would highlight when you think about X risk, um, it's, a, it's a complex non-deterministic system that is not simply uh, depend on the properties of a pathogen. It's about a pathogen interacting with humans, human systems, human societies, knock-on effects, human behavior, all of those with a high consequence biological event. As we're seeing with COVID, um, the interaction of all these factors are ultimately what determines the, uh, the, the full nature of the effect on uh, national and global populations. Mm. And so I was actually really uh, curious when I was watching the talk. Um, the tabletop exercise you mentioned in mid-Feb 2020, firstly, it seems extremely timely uh, with hindsight. Do you know any changes um, that came out of it from participating actors? Thank you. So uh, we were actually uh, quite surprised to see how similar some of the knock-on effects and the progression of, of COVID has been um, and how, how much that echoes the, the, some of the, the scenario that we, we developed for our exercise. And in fact, we developed our exercise in 2019, well before COVID emerged. Um, so we have, uh, what we've seen is that there is, um, as, as a result of both the COVID pandemic, there's a more willingness among global and national leaders to really think hard about large biological events and what we need to do to, to strengthen institutions to be more equipped to prevent and respond. Um, and so there is starting to be uh, some traction for a couple of our key recommendations. So we recommended establishing a global normative entity um, to, to sort of address emerging biotech risks. And we are starting to get um, some traction with a number of key stakeholders around the world. Um, likewise, the joint assessment mechanism, there seems to be some interest in that area as well. So we're hopeful that we're gonna be able to continue to drive progress um, in, over the coming year. Wonderful. Jam. So hopefully we'll all have some jam. <laughs> <laughs> it's our term um, for the mechanism. Yeah. Um, so what are the key issues around the Biological Weapons Convention? So you mentioned this in your talk also. So we've got this global body, body and what are the political and technical challenges preventing them from, for example, verifying that states don't have um, bioweapons? So there are a number of problems. The first problem is that the, the Biological Weapons Convention doesn't really have, has a very small team of people that supports their work. It's three people, it's the Implementation Support Unit and their budget annually is $1.5 million. So they can't do very much with that. But fundamentally, um, when it comes to verification, uh, states parties to the BWC tried about 20 years ago to develop a verification protocol and it collapsed. 
And there's um, a really interesting piece by Kenneth Ward. It's called A Mandate for Failure uh, about why that fell apart. That's admittedly a very US perspective, but it's really shaped my thinking about uh, some of the challenges that have unfolded. Um, I think this, the briefest way to summarize it is that there are both technical challenges and political challenges. Um, it's very technically challenging to verify that a country does not have biological weapons. And there are fraught political conversations in the context of the BWC about how to move this forward. Great, thank you. Um, and finally, we've only got time for one more question. So we really hope attendees will learn something new from this session. So wanted to ask, uh, which recent developments in the field have you personally found most surprising? And what do you think is likely to surprise people who haven't looked into it as much in as much depth as you as you have? So those are uh, happy to answer that. Those are two separate things. I think the thing that was most surprising for me was how difficult it was at the outset of COVID to, de to determine how bad it was going to be. We were really in February and uh, even in March, we were really unclear about how severe the pathogen was going to be and how far it was going to spread globally. Um, in terms of uh, for folks who don't look at this uh, issue as closely as we do at NTI, I think a lot of people expect that a lot of the capabilities and systems for responding to an event like this are in place and are strong. And in fact, everyone is seeing that they're not. And I think that that's a real wake up call for the global community and that we really need to focus investment and time to, to shore up our capabilities. So next time a pandemic strikes, we're better prepared and we can save lives and contain the disease. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much, Damie, for, for your time.